Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. We're working our way through the, uh, through the, the nuts and bolts of Christianity. We're really trying to, to acquaint ourselves once again with the fundamentals of this faith because teams that focus on fundamentals win championships, and the Church of Jesus Christ in North America is on a losing streak, not a winning streak, and it's time to turn that around. So last week, uh, we began our journey over, let's take us most of the summer, to, uh, to look at these fundamentals of the faith, and we're kind of using the Apostles' Creed as a guide for our journey. Now, the Apostles' Creed isn't found in the Bible. There's not a chapter or a book called the Apostles' Creed, but every one of the truths that are espoused in the Creed come from the Scriptures. And what I'm going to do is uh, acquaint you both with the Creed and with the scriptural background behind those things, so that by the end of the summer, you can say, I know this faith of mine, I know it well enough that I I can explain it in rather succinct, uh, abbreviated fashion to my friends. I can explain the faith faster than Cliff can preach. That's the goal, okay, by the end of the summer. Last week, we took a look at what it means to, when we say that, that God is our Father. This week, we're going to take a look um, at what it means that he's the maker of heaven and earth. Suffice it to say that from beginning to end, the Bible clearly teaches, repeatedly so, that God created absolutely everything that exists. The Bible opens this way, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4, we read, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, this truth, like the others in the creed, have, have served historically for almost 2,000 years, for about 1,900 years. They've served the church as truths that unify the church. In other words, we could have differences of opinion about all kinds of things, but when it came to these, these rudimentary principles, these foundation stones in the faith, Christians agreed, we're not going to fight about these things, we're going to agree about these things and unite around them, and it will be these truths that, that, that really pull the church together and make it, quite frankly, strong and believable to the world around us. I do not know what has happened to the church in the last hundred years. I think it's something having to do with, the, um, at least the church in America, with what we understand to be our rights. And when you say rights in America, you get about two inches taller and you bow your back. But something has happened in the church in America where we have decided that there's something more important than unity. And it's my right to think what I want. You know what? I'm good with people thinking what they want. But the problem with this bow in the back, I have the right to think what I want approach to life, is that we, we tend to do it like that, with our finger out and then our finger pointing at somebody, and all of a sudden, the, the contest is on to see who can beat the other one into believing that I'm right. And that thing, that thing, it may be very American, but it is also unholy and unpleasing to God. Now, hear me, hear me right. This is not your pastor standing in front of you saying you don't get to think for yourself. That's not at all what I'm saying. But understand that the, the function of truth historically for Christians has been the, the place where we come together, and these foundation stones are, were intended to unite us. But this one in particular, maker of heaven and earth, over the last 100, 150 years, pardon me, Instead of it uniting us, 
It has become this thing that divides us. We've engaged in a discussion because we, we entered into a, a, whole new, um, uh, a whole new era in human history, the, the era of scientific exploration and discovery. And in the process, we have found some things that we didn't know before. We found some truths that we didn't know before. But Christians entering into, particularly American Christians, entering into the discussion with all the other things that we have learned in this era of scientific discovery, I'm just going to say it. Christians, we haven't handled the conversation well. We have not handled ourselves well, meaning we haven't acted kind and Christ-like. We haven't handled the others in the conversation, whether it's Christians with whom we disagree, or unbelievers that we think are trying to stamp out our belief. We haven't handled those others well. And I think it's also the case, that particularly when it comes to this issue of, of God as maker of heaven and earth, we haven't handled the real content of the truth, the content of the discussion very well. And the result has been, instead of unity in the church, division in the church. There's been a whole lot of, of Anger and arguing that has not got us any closer to showing the world what the kingdom of God looks like. Because the kingdom of God is unity and it is love. Okay? So, uh, to, to just be very uh, pointed in what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the tendency of the church in America, particularly of the conservative part of the church, to argue about six-day creationism, intelligent design, and evolution. And already some of you are taking half breaths instead of long deep ones. Because you know the truth, and you're waiting to see whether your pastor is going to get it right today. No. Well, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you that positioning ourselves like that when it comes to any discussion gives the enemy himself a chance to do his work. So about, how about we do this? It's what I do every single Sunday that we uh, work together here. Um, I'm going to show you some things from the scripture, and then I'm, some, I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you what I think they mean. We won't argue about what appears in here, because it's written. What we think it means, you and I can talk about that, okay? But we're going to enter into this discussion about the, the business of God as maker of heaven and earth after we confess our faith together. So stand with me if you would. This might be the kind of thing that you uh, would commit to memory over the course of the summer, but this is what we believe. Read it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, God the Father Almighty. Today, maker of heaven and earth. And here's how I'm going to approach the, the, the discussion today. Um, first, we're just going to take a look and see what it is that the Bible says. What are the words that the Bible uses to describe this God as creator, as maker? And then, once we've determined what it is that the Bible 
actually says, we have to then determine, we do what's called interpretation. We look at these symbols, letters and words, and we figure out what is it that they mean. So the first part, not interpretation, just investigation. We're going to take a look in the scriptures. And, and we did that a little bit earlier, right? We had Genesis 1. We had, we had God created the heavens and the earth. And we had Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. God, you created and you deserve the glory and honor for those things. You created what pleased you. But the second part where we, where we interpret this is where we really have to ask ourselves a question. Um, what kind of book is the Bible? So how about this? Instead of me kind of belaboring the point with with 13 different uh, Bible verses that say God made the heavens and the earth, can you accept on the the basis of the first book and the last book of the Bible that the Bible teaches that God created heavens and earth? Nod your head if you're with me. Okay, don't have to do the backup work then. Let's go straight to the interpretive question then. Here's the interpretive question. What kind of book is the Bible? Because the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, it says the specific language all the way through is that God made the earth in six days. And a lot of people go, yeah, but what is a day? Aha! It's a good question, really. The vast majority of the time that the, that the word day appears in Scripture, both in Hebrew and in Greek, it means a literal 24-hour solar day. Okay, humans for a very long time have marked time kind of the same way. Sun up, sun down, we realize that's the passing of one something, and we call it a day. Okay? And the consistent language throughout the scripture is that God made the heavens and the earth, everything that exists, in six solar days, what you and I experience on the clock as 24 hours, okay? or approximately the length of one of my former sermons. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, So we can't get around the language of the scripture. It's in there, okay? And it uses this thing from, from Genesis, six days, solar days, as a pattern for teaching other things to human beings, like... The, the, the rhythm of, uh, of how we get in sync with relationship with a holy God. And, and we're taught that six days you work and one day you kind of rest and reflect, right? So, so this pattern of six days becomes very, very important. It's very consistent all the way throughout Scripture, okay? Genesis to Revelation, six days. Yes, 24-hour days. Somebody's saying, yeah, but with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Yeah, but not when it comes to... Um, not when it comes to creation. He said six days. That's the language consistent throughout Scripture. Okay? However, we, we have to ask this question. What's, what kind of a book is this? And that, my friends, ends up being, um, oh, it's a can of worms. Because the truth is, this is not one book. It's 66 books. It is a library of books, and they have been organized in here in a certain way. How many of you have ever tried to read the Bible from beginning to end? Good. How, how many of you ever got confused as you started to read it? Seemed like it was all out of order. See, we do time in linear fashion, and this thing doesn't follow the timeline very well. Have you noticed that? Yeah, there's a reason for that. It's because the first part, the first two-thirds of this book was, uh, was written, it really was produced by the Jewish religion, and they organized their library of religious books, their, their Bible, their Old Testament, they organized those according to topic. Here are the, the, the genres, the various topics of Scripture in the Jewish Bible. If we start at the end of it, we're going to work our way backwards. We've got the minor prophets, not because their message was minor, but because the books were shorter. Prior to that, the major prophets. But all of these prophets, they, those books gathered together uh, in, in one section called the prophets for a reason. One, 
because they were written by prophets. Number two, because the, uh, the purpose of those books was to call God's people back into relationship with him after they'd grown unfaithful and to warn them if they didn't and to prophesy the coming of a savior. Okay? Every one of the books, every one of the books of the prophets has that as its purpose. If you back up to the next section, you've got the wisdom literature. And it's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. If you try to read that like you're reading the prophets, it doesn't read at all the same way and you get a little bit confused. Because all of the wisdom literature is kind of, it's, it's poem and it's song and it's plays that help you understand how to act out wisdom and love in this world. And you don't read the script of a play the same way that you read the newspaper, do you? Not at all, okay? So we've got the prophets, we've got the wisdom literature, and prior to that, we have this section called the historical books. And the historical books um, are, surprise, histories. They are names, dates, places, names, dates, places, names, dates, places, again and again and again and again, so that the story of God and God's people marching down through time can be read, observed, and interpreted later on. But the whole point is to make sure that we understand the history. The section prior to that, the very first part of the Bible, is called the law. And the law has some historical stories in it, but the point of the books of the law, i got to get this, it's really important. The point of the law is not to tell us history. Which section tells us history? Historical books. The whole point of the law, understood from, from, from the very beginnings when they put this book together, was to help human beings understand how to live and act in ways that are pleasing to God so that when they do eventually start a relationship, they'll know how to keep from sabotaging it. And so the law gives us rules or a, or a legal code that helps us know what healthy relationship with God can look like, okay? Now, so what kind, of, what kind of book is the Bible? It's a lot of kinds of books. But what if you take it as a whole? What kind of book is this? I'm going to give you two options. There's, there's several, but I'm going to give you two. Is the book, is the Bible primarily a history book or a faith history book? Is it trying to teach us just stories or... Is it trying to teach us the story of how God lived and died for a chance to have relationship with human beings? It's a faith history. Now, listen, don't get offended. When we say that, it doesn't mean that none of the history of the Bible is true. It doesn't mean it's all made up. No. It's just that the purpose of telling all of the stories, the purpose of all of the poems, the purpose of all of the prophets, all of the gospels and the epistles in the New Testament, the purpose of all of it together is to tell the story of a God who cannot stand to live apart from human beings and who will do whatever it takes to reach into their lives and save them from their destructive selves. The Bible is a faith history book. Now, the language of the scriptures, as I made clear earlier, very clearly, six solar days, that makes us ask the question, is that then the only thing that a good Christian can believe about creation? And I will submit to you that the answer is not necessarily. Because of how we answer the question, what kind of book is the Bible? History or faith history? See, went through all those Old Testament book categories, and, and get this. Did you catch in, in the, the catalog of the, the genres of literature where the book of Genesis is? It's not in the history books. 
It's not in the historical books. It's not. And it was put in the law for a reason. Because the whole point of of the book of Genesis and of Exodus and of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the whole point was to help human beings know there's a God who does not do life without them happily. And it helps human beings know how to live happily in relationship to God. Now, that being the case, you read the books of the law differently than you read historical books. And so, here's what I'm going to tell you today. You can be a faithful Christian and read the opening pages of the Bible and come to understand and come to the opinion that it was six 24-hour days in which God created the heavens and the earth. You can do that. You can also be a faithful Christian who looks at that same, that same text and says, I wonder why the people who wrote it didn't put it in the historical category. You can faithfully ask that question and say, maybe what they were trying to teach us was something altogether other than time and processes. Yeah. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think today. Not about whether it was created in six days or six billion years, because you know why? It doesn't matter. If, if, you, if you decide to build your faith on one of those two positions and shoot at everybody else who disagrees with you, you have fundamentally missed the point of the, of the belief that God is the maker of heaven and earth. If you sit on the other side of the divide because you think there's a divide and you are insistent that this world could not possibly have been made in six days and you need to open your minds on the other side, you you have completely missed the point of our assertion, our belief, our faith that God is the maker of heaven and earth. It's interesting. We've been been quoting this creed together for for 1,900 years. The church has. Did you notice that it says, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and then it moves straight to Jesus and doesn't say anything about asterisk, six days, six days only, or six days, meaning years of time. Did you notice it's not even in there? You know why? Because the early church fathers didn't think it was worth arguing about. And because they knew that this phrase, maker of heaven and earth, actually gives us enough truth to change our lives. Because it orders the universe. You see, if God is actually the maker of heaven and earth, whether he did it like that or a bit like that, it took a crazy amount of power to create the universe. Agreed? It took an incredible intelligence. Agreed? It took an imagination and a playfulness that is beyond what human beings have ever been able to generate since. Agreed? Yeah. If God is the maker of heaven and earth, then it means that he has power and he has authority. It takes a crazy amount of power to make a big bang work and spew out Um, an entire universe. It takes an incredible amount of power to bring life where there was none. It takes an incredible amount of power to light on fire, being, or uh, uh, 
creatures, items in the universe that now can produce light that travels billions of years and makes our sky pretty. It takes an incredible amount of power. If God is, in fact, the maker of heaven and earth, then he has an incredible amount of power. We just have to, we have to just concede that. But it's also the case that if he's the maker of heaven and earth, then he also has authority because everything you make belongs to you. I make uh, some woodworking stuff. So does Calvin, and it's ours. We can then keep it or we can give it away to other people. That's our prerogative. You may make some things on your job, but they don't belong to you. Why? Because you entered into a contract in which you said, I'll make these things for somebody else, right? But what you make, it's just a, it's a, it's a well-accepted fact that what you make is initially yours. And the God who made heaven and earth owns everything within it. And that means every human being that, was, that, is, that is born into it as well. So God ends up getting, he has power. He doesn't get power. He had power, it just possessed within himself as a fact of his being that created the whole universe. But when he created, he then gained a position of authority over everything that he made because he's the maker of it. Go make something this afternoon. Enjoy it. Tear it apart and throw it away if you want to afterwards. It's your prerogative. Why? Because you own it. You have authority over it. God, as maker of heaven and earth, possesses both power and authority. The church fathers wanted to make sure that we got this. Jesus himself, the apostles, wanted to make sure that we got this. Why? Because once you come to understand that God is the maker of heaven and earth, you will also then learn how to live in relationship to him. And it, we, we put this at the beginning of the creed so that before we discover all these other, other things about the saving love of God and about the beauty of his church and about the, the eternal future, we order the universe right again. Does your world feel like it's working right these days? Because mine doesn't. I am done watching the news, huh? Mm-hmm. Amen to that. I mean, I, just, I, I watch it and I just see one more indication of how the seams are busting and... and And the world's coming apart. Does it feel a little bit like that to you? Does anybody think that if the world was working right, we'd have school shootings? Because I don't. Does anybody think if the world worked right, that we'd we'd have aborted 70 million babies so far in American history? I don't think anybody looks at the world and says, that seems about right. Our world needs to be reordered. And part of what happens in our faith when we latch onto the truth is that it, it, it starts sorting life out for us again. And here's something that has to get sorted out in the life of every human being. Who is God and who is not? Who is God and who is not? As maker of heaven and earth, God has power and he has authority, but it also means The fact that he's creator means that he possesses certain things, but it also means that he deserves certain other things. And he deserves first surrender and second worship. He deserves surrender and worship. Surrender looks like this. It means putting an end to that bow in our backs that says, I'll do it my way. Surrender means no more rebellion. When I see that God and I disagree... I change my mind when I see that uh, God asks things that are too big for me instead of brushing them off and going my own way. I humbly bring myself before him and say, God, you're going to have to help me. Rebellion means that at some point we quit protesting God and we surrender to him.
That's the end of rebellion, okay? It also means that we purpose in our hearts that we are going to obey God as we come to understand what his heart and his will are for this world and quit making excuses for disobedience. If he's God, if he's, if he's the maker of heaven and earth, if he owns the earth in which we do business, and he owns us, those who do business within the world, then he has the authority to say how life should go, and we take our place, we resign as pretend gods of our own universes, and we take our place of submission before him. It's not very American, and you won't like it initially. But it will begin to reorder your life and your world, and you'll find that it fits you better than you doing life on your own terms. In the long run, you'll find that it fits you better. He deserves surrender, but he also deserves worship if he is the God of heaven and earth. We're going to end the service today doing what we were created to do and what is implied by this confession of faith that we all made earlier, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's the maker of heaven and earth. Here's what worship really means. It's a word that we don't use very well apart from the faith. We, we talk about worshiping, um, you know, celebrities and sports teams and so forth. And um, God help us if we do. We don't use the word worship very well within the church in America these days because worship has become a word that means music, and those two are not synonyms. They're just not, okay? Music can be a part of worship, but they're just not synonymous. Here's what worship means uh, in, in terms of just practicality for living in this world, you and me, from day to day. It means that God is admired and applauded. It means that we view God as better than us, more powerful than us, as God not human, and therefore worthy of admiration. Instead of thinking of God as a big jerk or a big bully, we decide that as maker of heaven and earth, he deserves something from those he has created, some admiration. And remember, we already talked about the power, and we already talked about the creativity, and we already talked about the imagination and the intelligence, right? We've already built the case for the admiration of God. Admiration is something that takes place in our hearts, but applause is something that takes place with our bodies, And however it is that you applaud, literal applause, kneeling, singing, dancing, doing good for your neighbor, however it is that you engage the physicality of you in the interest of showing the God that you admire him, that's applause, okay? Now get this, whenever the heart and the body get together, whenever admiration and applause coincide. An incredible thing happens in the heart of God. He experiences that as affection. Come on. You love hugs and kisses, don't you? Yeah. So does he. He's just hard to get a hold of. Yeah. You want to know how to, you know how to lay some affection on God? Admire him in your heart and applaud him with your physicality. That's worship. Worship isn't just the admiration. If it never makes it past your lips or past your fingertips, God doesn't get glory for it. You get inspired, maybe. But worship is intended to call the attention of everyone around us toward the God who deserves to be applauded. See, um, 
six days or six billion years, it doesn't matter. Do you think it's any less of a miracle for God to, to create and superintend processes for six billion years? I can't keep, I can't keep track of my keys for a week. You think, think maybe it's any less miraculous for God to superintend processes for six billion years? Because I don't. It all started somewhere, and it was with him. And if we argue about these things, we miss the point that he is God and we are not. And that this universe that was created by him must also be ordered by him with him at the top and us underneath as creatures who don't any longer pretend to be God or rebel against him as God, but who then take their place beneath him as children of a benevolent father. Remember, the almighty God is our Abba. Hey, listen. On Mother's Day, you should say nice things about your mom and to your mom. On Father's Day, you should say nice things about your dad and to your dad if you can. Don't take them for granted. Just assuming that they know. And let's not take for granted this beautiful, majestic, heavenly Father of ours who is worthy of all praise. I want to invite you this morning, worship team's coming. I want to invite you to end this service doing the most human thing you can do. You've said many times when you have failed at something, well, I'm only human. Let me tell you this morning, embrace your humanity. You can't do anything more human than to bring imperfect praises to God. So why don't you stand or sit? Um, Why don't you clap or... Or not? Why don't you you kneel and, and sing at full voice, or or just stand in, in it, soaking in the, the the expressions of love of those around you? But join us in some way in acknowledging the Maker of heaven and earth, who is our Father and who is God.